just because you're being given feedback doesn't mean it's good feedback and that you should apply that at that company. You really have to learn the culture and reflect on what is going to serve me well from this feedback. What should I throw out and how do I move forward with it? Hey, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Andrew Kaplan, and this is a show where I chat with people who lead cross-functional growth teams, not about their favorite tactics, strategies, or playbooks. There's enough of that out there from other folks. This show is about the personal challenges, career adversity, and self-doubt when you work in growth roles at early stage companies. My guest today is Lauren Schumann. Lauren is currently a fractional growth leader at Sidebar, and Lauren's been working in product-led growth for the last eight years. Previously, she was VP of product growth at Mural, where she scaled their PLG practice. And before that was the senior director of product insights and growth at MailChimp, where she built and scaled both their growth and experimentation practices from scratch. I was excited to chat with Lauren about three things in this episode. The first is the importance of evangelizing what growth is, what growth owns, and how growth approaches the work, and not just working in growth, but teaching other folks about the importance of what growth is. Lauren shares her mistakes and some of the insights that she's learned there. We also talked about what happens when your company shifts from PLG to more of a traditional inside sales model and what that means for someone who owns PLG at a company like that, how it impacts your influence, your resources, and your mental health. And we also talked about how to handle tough performance feedback, specifically times when you get tough feedback that you choose not to accept. There's a ton of good stuff in this episode. Let's jump right into the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Nevatic. We're seeing the next phase of product-led growth emerge right now. The first phase of PLG was all about using your product as a go-to-market tool, basically creating free plans, free trials, or reverse free trials, getting new accounts to sign up, and then layering in retention and upgrade programs. It was a solid playbook. The only challenge is that the product value is hidden behind your signup form, which means that most of your visitors never get to see it. The next phase of PLG is all about leading with product value, creating interactive product demos, embedding them on your website and letting people play with them, click around and see the value before signing up. This engages way more people, which means more experience that value, more convert to your paid plans and more become brand advocates. If you're sold on the idea, but not sure where to start, check out Novatic. Their no-code editor makes it easy to create interactive demos and they're offering a free trial exclusively for delivering value listeners. Go to novatic.com slash value and sign up for a free trial and see for yourself. What initially led you into the cross-functional world of growth? How did you get started? Growth is still relatively new. You've been in the game a while. How did you get here? So I've been around in the PLG space for about eight years. I would say the underpinning of my career was following the data and following the technology and being curious. I started out my career in corporate retail, which seems completely disconnected, but it's really not. It was about running your own small business inside of another business. That generalist mindset, I think, has served me well. But essentially, I was in e-commerce and CRO, conversion rate optimization, was this big thing. And there's a lot of shared principles like experimentation, targeting, digital analytics, like understanding user behavior. And especially in the e-commerce space, Everything was about driving revenue, and that translated really nicely to PLG because it was like, hey, you understand it's about driving business outcomes. What's the lens in which you're doing that? So for me, it was those points of connection. I went corporate retail to e-commerce. So like I pulled skill sets from corporate retail into e-commerce where there was more data and the technology was changing. And then I made the jump from e-commerce into SaaS. 
I pulled my experience in conversion rate optimization and then learned more about the SaaS world. And so I've just taken pieces along the way, built off of it and just raised my hand to learn new things and be curious about it. What's funny is now we have this term PLG, but I feel like when you started eight years ago, it wasn't a term yet, or if it was a term, it hadn't been fully evangelized and adopted. And so when I would explain what I did to my friends and my family, I would say it's like e-commerce, but for software. And so that really resonates with me. Yeah, I think growth was more the term and less product-led growth. I remember reading Hacking Growth by Sean Ellis and Morgan Brown, and that was my Bible, essentially. Like, here's how folks are doing this. What can I learn from this? And I took a very academic approach in the beginning, actually. I just went out and researched a bunch of what people were doing and tried to learn and then start applying it in my own company. I did the same thing. And I quickly learned most of what I read didn't apply one-to-one. Did you have a similar realization? Yeah, I think one of the biggest lessons learned is like you can get inspiration from what other people have done. And I think it's great food for thought, but ultimately it's not that easy. You can't just copy the playbook from other folks. You really have to understand your business, your customers, and your company. A really big learning is how do you tailor your message for who you're trying to potentially convince, whether it's your external or internal customers. And why do you think you were so drawn to this? Because there could be other people who had the same background as you that weren't reading Hack and Growth and treating it like their Bible. Why do you think you went down this road? I'm a lifelong learner, first and foremost. So I constantly am interested in just learning new things and having new challenges. And I think that curiosity was really an important part of the journey. And then once I've started doing something for a while, I am looking for what's next that's new and challenging. And because PLG was so new and evolving, that was of interest to me. And then also, I love fast moving, rapid nature of growth and the data driven nature. So I'm somebody who very much values both qualitative and quantitative research. I find it interesting. And I just want to know why people do the things they do. If people ask, why did I invest in marketing? What was interesting to me? It all boils down to human behavior. And really, the root of all of this is why people do the things that they do. When you learn that you can influence using product and words and images and design tweaks. And once I realized that you could do those things and see real differences in human behavior, I went through the same thing where I just became addicted and I couldn't get enough. It sounds like you went through the same thing. Yeah. I remember reading Influence. It's about like the psychology of human behavior and all the principles behind, you know, ask for something and someone would be more likely to give something back. And Even at MailChimp, we went through an exercise where we're doing ideation and we each wore a psychological principle and we're like, hey, what would change if you were applying this particular principle? And it was just fascinating. And I love when we're proven wrong. You're so convinced that people will do something and they don't do that thing. I just learned something about human behavior. Like I assumed this and then it completely wasn't true. It's always the one that you're like, oh, I think that this is going to work. I feel really strongly about it. And then you're wrong and you're like, well, shoot, now what do I do with this? And that's why I think qualitative feedback is so important to a qualitative data, because it can be really easy to just look at the quantitative data, but then you have no idea why. Like, why did this happen in particular? And then you get all the color when you start talking to users and prospects. And so the richest aha moments for me have definitely been like, we did an experiment and then we really finally understood what was happening. Yeah, you get the full picture. You've talked about a few folks already. You talked about Morgan Brown. You talked about Sean Ellis. 
who are the other pivotal people or if there's a pivotal moment that's impacted your career journey? I was actually reflecting upon this and my first time moving from e-commerce into SaaS was a company called Experience, not around anymore, unfortunately. They didn't survive the pandemic. They were in the sports and live entertainment space in terms of selling innovative ticketing solutions and experiential marketplace. They reached out to me. They were hiring for like a director of merchandising. And I'm like, why do you need a director of merchandising? Like you're a technology product. Well, ultimately what it was is they were trying to figure out how do they sell to their end consumers. And they knew how to sell their technology to Live Nation and the sporting teams, but those people didn't really understand how to create the UX and sell in the product. I was teaching folks about that, which was a good alignment with my e-commerce background. I moved from marketing into product. And when I went into product, there was like a pretty young product leader, Eric Gordonson at the time. And he was tracking what was happening in this new growth space. And he basically said, hey, Lauren, like research companies, how do they grow and how they scale and bring it here? I remember moving over to report to him and thinking like, we're kind of the same in terms of experience. What am I going to learn here? And he gave me the time and space and the prompt to actually do the research and start to bring it to experience. And so it was there that I began working on this journey to learn about how companies grow. Pretty amazing. And so was he a mentor for you or he was more of a manager that just happened to ask you this thing? No, he was more of a manager. And honestly, it was funny because when I moved over, I was much more seasoned in my career than he was. And I was thinking, what am I going to learn from this person? Not necessarily in terms of product, but you're always constantly sort of evaluating your landscape of what can I learn versus where do I need to get external support. But one thing he was really good at was tracking the market. He came from a consulting background and he actually started as a consultant that then landed full time in the company. So he gave me the prompt and the space to figure it out, which I think really changed the trajectory of my career. It's amazing. So you've gone on for your time and experience to do some incredibly impressive things from the outside looking in. Maybe it doesn't feel that way, but it looks that way to me from the company experience to MailChimp, Mural, OpenView, advising. One of the things that I hear a lot about during the early days for folks who are in growth is that they struggle to teach other teams about what this growth thing is. And because of that, they're less successful because they spend all this time trying to do the job and other people don't really know what the job is and it causes all kinds of stress down the road. Did that ever happen to you in the early days of this journey? Yes, I'm feeling this big time. When I started Growth from Scratch at MailChimp, I was really confident in the value that growth could bring to MailChimp and that the reason they were struggling is that they were tackling it in a way that was incongruent with the outcomes they were trying to drive. And what I've realized along the way is that I had to do things twofold. One, I had to actually work on doing the job of driving growth, but I also had to bring people along in the journey with me. And so there's a lot of evangelization, I say, and education. At times I did feel a little bit worn out from this because it's like you're doing your job of actually driving growth, but then you're also doing the education piece. And it's really easy to second guess yourself too. When people ask you questions, I got a lot with, isn't product-led growth just good product management? And that one really tripped me up on occasion. I'd be like, well, yes, and, right? Because the reality is, one, it took getting to know more core PMs and sort of their work and mindset and growth PMs and their mindset and hiring a bunch of them and working with different types of people. But it also took the gut checks of the reality of organizations and talking to others about the specific problem. 
actually, I credit Natalia Williams, who is now the CPO at Hootsuite, but she was a really good partner of mine at MailChimp, but she was leading product. And we'd have these like good debates and she'd actually help me see like, yes, in theory, that sounds what great product managers should do. They should be data-driven. They should experiment. But there is this whole part where like PMs can't manage like core PM work and growth work and technical work. It's too much on one person. So a lot of it is about the specialization and understanding that where you put measurement and where you put focus, you can get results. And that's played out time and time again for me. Stay confident in what you know, but also flex to the organization. And one of the things I really learned in this journey, especially at MailChimp, was like I was trying so hard to do it right by the playbook and get the terminology right and how we were setting up product growth. And at MailChimp in particular, I was bringing both experimentation and growth at the same time. We didn't have experimentation tooling and practices, and there's so much that's related between the two. Well, the organization really got and latched on to experimentation, but they didn't get the growth part. And they were conflating the two. They're not the same thing. And I tried to teach the difference. Instead of trying to fight that, go with what people understand the language that they're speaking and use that to make progress. It's less important about getting the precise way of doing things or the right terminology, but instead go where you have the tailwinds. And how did you realize that? Did somebody point that out to you? Is that what you said? Or is that just a realization that you just eventually something clicked and you're like, oh, this is what's going on here? I think it was actually probably in talking to someone on my personal board of directors, my peer group of people. And I had a few at MailChimp and like since then have built a bigger group of these folks. I'm pretty sure one of my advisors pointed out to me like, hey, well, if people are getting missed, why is it so important to get it precise? And I do a lot of time like networking too with other folks in the growth and product and marketing space and talking about challenges. And I feel like I've heard this from others too, which was very validating. Go with the momentum you have. That's the most important thing. You got to understand your organization. Use the language they speak. I remember trying to introduce the concept of growth loops and people were not getting it. I mean, they were getting it conceptually, but like they weren't really getting it to put it into practice. And people were just like, just give it up. Don't use that language. It's too academic. Talk in terms that people understand. And what's going on at MailChimp at this time? How far along is this? What are some of the main company struggles at this point? Just to contextualize this stuff for the listeners. Yeah, I'd say I think I was about two years into my journey at MailChimp. This is pre-acquisition by Intuit. The company had launched their freemium offering maybe a year before I joined the company. And so the top of funnel was growing extremely fast. But there was no understanding like the onboarding journey and the rest of the funnel. We hadn't defined activation. Interestingly enough, the company hadn't changed their pricing in 10 years. They weren't thinking about things like free-to-paid conversion and all this stuff. They were focused a lot more on building the brand, expanding beyond email, becoming an all-in-one marketing platform. They started to lose sight of the core part of the business and were really focused on developing new features and products within their portfolio. When I came in, I was hired as a director of marketing optimization with no team, like a very loose charter. And ultimately through investigation in the organization, what I really realized is they actually needed the growth and experimentation practice. That's what I worked on building. Basically, you're scaling this growth and experimentation practice from the ground up. And we started this conversation by, you were kind of sharing, I had my growth job, which was to grow the company. And then I also had my evangelization education part of my job. And you said you got the percentage wrong. 
And so I'm curious to know, reflecting back on it, what would you estimate that breakdown was? And if you could go back in time, what would you have done differently for folks that are listening that are probably in similar positions? I'd say it was a little less about the percentage and more just about the language that I was using and how I was sharing the difference between growth and experimentation. So what I would have done is I would have picked up on where there was traction in the organization in terms of experimentation. So people would say like, oh, that's a growth experiment. And I think they just assumed that everything was a growth experiment and that there weren't experiments that weren't necessarily growth experiments and vice versa. I spent a good chunk of time trying to correct people on that and it was wasted time. So I'd say like I wasted probably six months trying to do that, trying to get it right. And instead I would have said, Lauren, just go with what you have traction and progress on and leverage that, leverage the language that people are talking, even if it's wrong, even if it irritates you and the team, that's not what matters. You can eventually share more later. And what pain was that misalignment causing? Because I know you've shared that you spent a lot of energy in time trying to correct it. Why was that so important to get right? I think because I wanted people to understand growth and I knew experimentation was important to the whole company. Thinking about MailChimp as a product-led growth company, that wasn't language that was used at all. And the irony is that there were a lot of things the company was doing that was product-led. I mean, launching freemium, we had a viral content loop around monkey rewards. So like at the bottom of every email, there's like a MailChimp badging and it brought people back to sign up. Like we were doing some of these things, but interestingly enough, one, no one had touched them in a long time and no one was thinking about them in that way. And I felt like in order to build a really good strategy behind this and understand the impact, people had to understand why product-led growth was important and what some of the things we are currently doing, how they were already product-led. You also shared the importance of having support systems. I think you called it your peer group. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what that looked like for you and the role that it played? It started out as pretty informal. And then over the last couple of years, I thought about it a bit more formally. And actually, that's a huge reason why I've joined Sidebar, my newest company in the fractional growth leader role. Sidebar is doing exactly that. It's helping you cultivate your peer-to-peer board of directors, but essentially it's your support system. So as leaders, it gets lonely. Sometimes you have the support internally in a company, but sometimes you don't. And sometimes that's not a very safe space. Sometimes you need support of folks who get your work, but actually sometimes you need support from other amazing people who don't do your work because they can give you sort of an outsider perspective. And so in these specific scenarios with MailChimp and then definitely some examples from Mural, I really relied on these folks that I just knew were my go-to people. There's an example at Mural where I was having one of the hardest times in my career and I immediately WhatsApped a group of my peer board of directors. And within 15 minutes, I had responses from all of them. And I had one FaceTiming me to have a conversation. Like they were there to support me through difficult decisions and difficult times. They give you like a different perspective. But a lot of times it's just validation of what you already know. It helps you build the confidence to say, I believe I know what to do, but I need another smart person whom I really trust to just validate that or validate my feelings and help me feel confident about my path forward. That happened at Mural, and I really learned to rely on that group a ton. Getting perspective is so important. Someone to say, yes, you're on the right path. Keep going. You're not crazy. Or someone to say, hey, there's maybe a different way of looking at this. Here's what that could look like. And then you can explore it together. So I totally understand and agree with the value of having a peer group or mentorship or a coach. How did you find these people? 
the people that were on your WhatsApp group, how did you find them specifically? Yeah. One of them was up here at MailChimp and we actually happened to be connected through our spouses. We met and they had worked together. So I just admire her so much. So her name's Joni Deuce. She still leads partnerships at MailChimp. And part of what I value about our relationship in particular is that we have trust and we don't hold back with each other. You need someone who's going to give you the brutal, honest truth. And if you're being ridiculous, you need them to be able to tell you that. And you trust each other so much that when someone says that, you take that to heart. It's like the idea of you have to care personally in order to truly be able to deliver meaningful feedback. I think that's what's so important in your board of directors. As you care personally about each other, you have that deep relationship. And so when someone gives you feedback, you take it to heart. And it's usually not your manager, in my experience. Unless you get lucky, or maybe it's a previous manager, it's usually someone different. And that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, your manager certainly can give you great feedback about your specific performance. But this is definitely more about outside your scope of that group. And a lot of times outside of your company, I think, because of that, it feels safe to say, I made this mistake and that's failure. And there's no repercussions because you're not connected to that same set of people in a company in general. Switching gears a little bit, one of the challenges that I hear as a coach is they'll get hired at a company to own PLG, whatever their title is. That's sort of their ownership and accountability. And then the company will shift. Maybe they'll abandon PLG to chase higher revenue sales-led approaches. And because of that company shift, it impacts your resources, your success, your status at the company, your influence. And as a result, sometimes your confidence, sometimes you can even bring that home with you at the end of the day. Have you ever experienced that in your journey? Very recently, actually. So this was the end of my time at Mural, which I wrapped up at the end of April this year. My confidence was at an all-time low and my friends and family could definitely see how stressed I was. But the long story short is exactly that. I was hired by our co-founders who were very involved in the business at the time. One was the CEO and one was a CPO who I reported to. And I wanted to scale PLG and self-serve in particular at Mural. So the company started very sales-led, had done very well from a sales-led perspective, but really saw what the competition was doing in terms of product-led and how good long-term growth strategy that could be. So for about two years, I helped scale our PLG practice and build our self-serve experience. And I'd say I did that reasonably well, considering it was a time of a lot of up and downs. At the time, there was two growth PMs, a couple of engineers, and a designer working on growth. And essentially, it was craft a strategy around that and build a team out and start doing it. There wasn't a team in place there. For me, it was figure out what's the priority around PLG. The very first question I had was, do we care most about driving revenue or do we care about driving users? And so there were trade-offs related to how you think about growth in particular. And ultimately, we ended up picking one thing and then shifting to the other thing, which makes sense. But I really wanted to bring clarity because I think a mistake that a lot of PLG teams make is that the scope of PLG can be so big and so ambiguous that you feel like you're accountable to everything and it's very distracting. Number one thing I do is figure out priority of focus. And so that was a decision at the leadership level, what do we want to make? So we narrowed the scope and then we worked backwards, building our growth model to say like, where do we spend time and energy? I built the team based on the customer journey with the greatest areas of opportunity. We spent a lot of time on activation and onboarding, which I know is a passion area of yours. And then we also worked a lot on monetization 
and we actually launched Premium. That was one of the first projects that I worked on. We didn't have a good checkout. There wasn't really a good way to buy online previous to that. In between that, business got difficult. The economy was changing. And so I had come from the point where it was like one team and I had built up to five teams. I also had a team focused on enablement. So like tooling and data and things like that. And then it was down to three teams and down to two teams. And there's a lot of reorganization in between. We were halfway built out when we had layoffs and a hiring freeze. And so I had constantly had to be reprioritizing. What is the most important thing? How do we organize our resources to be working on the most impactful stuff? It's hard to be working on a specific mission and vision and then constantly iterating, but that is the reality of our jobs. If there is a team in the world that needs to be nimble, it's definitely growth teams. You have to be open to the fact that the only constant is that there will absolutely be change. And by the way, I look for that a ton in hiring. I look for resilience and folks who are going to be able to stay motivated and plugged in even with change. And that happened to me in a big way. So both of the co-founders stepped out of the business, the CEO and the CPO who I was reporting to. And we brought in a professional CEO and he came in with a very strong sales-led background. And I think based on where the company was at, we all knew that there was opportunity in product-led sales. Essentially, how do you leverage the product more so from a selling capacity? And I actually had already been working on a strategy to focus less on self-serve revenue, which really had ended up going after SMBs in like mid-market and focus a lot more on the introductory sale with a team in an enterprise and how you end up feeding that to your sales organization. So that was like the very beginning of it when the CEO joined the company. But ultimately, I just couldn't convince him really to invest in the team to do this or really to invest in me. It was really hard having a new leader come on board and feeling like you immediately have to prove yourself and prove your value. I was being judged on what was already in market in terms of PLG. And there was some misalignment in terms of how long we had tried to be PLG as a company and what we had accomplished. There were definitely areas that I believe I would have made different decisions if I could go back and do it. But I did feel like I failed my team and I failed myself because I felt like I had put together a really good plan for how PLG could scale into product-led sales that would align. But I just ultimately couldn't convince him that we needed a dedicated team and a dedicated leader to do that. And was there a specific moment that everything changed or was it this slow, we're going in this other direction? No, we're going to freeze your budget this quarter. Which of those was it? It felt like a painful four months. The initial was like, hurry up and try to show what you've done, but also give context as to why some of those decisions were made. And that's super hard because you don't want to defend it as, no, but you don't understand or, oh, you don't want to make excuses for why things are, but there is context to be had. You're working within specific constraints. So that balance I find really difficult. And I haven't mastered that. It's something I'm always working on. How do you give context without feeling like you're justifying or making excuses? But I knew everybody was re-interviewing for their job. Every leader in the company was under a microscope. And so there was a ton of pressure to prove what you've done is good enough or why you should be someone who should continue to work on this. That was hard. I felt like I put together actually a really good strategy. So I partnered with our new leader of strategy and RevOps and our new leaders of demand gen and growth marketing. And we created a great strategy. I honestly don't know where the disconnect was. I think some of it was I didn't know all the sales language. 
So my background originally, as I chatted with you about, was B2C, really. And eventually it was B2B and SMB and this whole new B2B enterprise world is really new to me. And that's why I joined Neural. I wanted to get more experience in that space. I felt like I was speaking my own language in PLG, whereas the rest of the organization understood this core sales-led language. And because of that disconnect, I think I didn't have the same credibility because I wasn't using all the language that they were using. I think if I had more of the experience on the sales side, I would have known how to speak to a really strong sales-led leader in a way that could have convinced them, but I didn't have that experience yet. So I've learned a lot from that for sure. I'm curious to know, what was your self-dialogue during that time? It's in this four-month period, things aren't going well. You've re-interviewed for your job. You're not getting let go. You're still there. Things are plodding along. You're feeling a little self-conscious about the lingo. What's going on in your head during that time? My confidence was definitely an all-time low. I was just like, do you even know what you're doing? Why can't you convince this person you're good enough? The new CEO was hiring a lot of people from a past company. And I was like, maybe I don't have the same pedigree or I can't stand on my own in that front. I believed that I was a strong leader to move forward in the company, but I was getting no signals that other people believed that. And so that's really hard. In general, I haven't struggled a ton with confidence in the workplace. Definitely sometimes imposter syndrome. And so when you don't get the signals to validate that confidence and you're especially not getting them over and over again, you can get just super low and you start to second guess yourself. And I'll say also this new CEO brought a really different style. We did a lot of things in Mural. We brainstormed, we did presentations there. And then the new culture was to write one pagers and docs. That was a completely different skill set. So not only was I trying to show my value, I was trying to do it in a way that we hadn't been exercising in a really long period of time. So again, I started being like, well, maybe I'm really shitty at writing docs. It's too wordy or I'm not getting the right content. It was definitely a low point. And I definitely went to my board of directors during that time period. And I think people helped me see beyond the situation. I would call some people my hype women or hype men. And we all have those people, I hope, in our lives, personally and professionally. I relied on a lot of that to just get through. And when the time came to part ways with Mural, I had made peace with all of that and felt like I did my best. This wasn't set to work out. And there's going to be like a new challenge where I will be valued and appreciated and my confidence can grow back. And I'm happy to say that's been happening. I'm smiling because I heard someone else refer to that hype crew as their shine crew. This is a few years ago. They shared this with me and I smiled and I was like, oh, that's fun is what I thought to myself at the moment. And what I've realized with more time is it's fucking genius. We all need that. And we all have ups and downs. And when you're up, the only place to go is down. And when you're down, you just don't know when you'll be back up again. And having a crew professionally that pumps you up and keeps you steady and builds you back up when you need it is actually a really good professional advantage. Like it's not just a fun thing. It's actually something that's a competitive advantage, I think. I totally agree. I think it's the thing that differentiates when you go to interview for the next job, how confident are you? Because if your confidence is shot from your last experience and you're still in that low spot, like people sense that. It's going to come out and how you're having those conversations. It's almost like a sickness that you can bring with you a few jobs if you're not careful. Yeah. And what I have realized is that you need to digest after you leave a job and figure out what you want to take with you that's been good and what you don't want to take. I watched myself bring some toxic habits from one company to the next. So for example, 
one company had a very consensus-driven culture. And it was all about being liked and getting that consensus and having people come along and be nice. At the detriment, I was less opinionated and less direct in the next company. Basically, I was being told I could be more assertive. But I had unlearned some of my assertiveness in the past company because that didn't work there. Just because you're being given feedback doesn't mean it's good feedback and that you should apply that at that company. You really have to learn the culture and reflect on what is going to serve me well from this feedback. What should I throw out and how do I move forward with it? What's also interesting about that is what works at one company isn't the right fit for another. There's a company culture you fit that's real. Both of those pieces of feedback are probably the right piece of feedback for that company. You can decide if you want to accept it or not, but probably are given for reason, but it doesn't mean that it's the right thing for the next company. On the topic of feedback, have you ever gotten a bad performance review or any really tough formal feedback in your career? Well, I'm happy to say I've never gotten a bad performance review, but I've definitely gotten tough feedback. I'm a very direct communicator. I don't know if that's because I'm a northerner. And I worked in the South for a long time. So like there's differences in culture. I also worked in a global company at Mural where people all around the world. So again, like culturally, people are very different as it pertains to that. But there's another thing I'll say about feedback and then I'll share that is that every piece of feedback has something you can learn from it and some truth. So even if you feel like it's completely unfair, there's something that someone is giving you a cue to. And it's your job to sort through that and figure out what that cue is and what's useful. One of the worst pieces of feedback I think I received, and I felt like it was tough because I felt like it was completely unfair, was I was told that I had to be more likable to get promoted. I was enraged. I was like, this is such bullshit. First of all, I was thought gender. Are my male counterparts getting the feedback that they need to be likable? Because I do a lot of folks around me who took the bulldozing approach and they were seen as badly successful and they were getting promoted. But I was also getting a cue about the organization that if I was rubbing some people the wrong way with my approach, then I wasn't going to succeed in that organization. And that's my choice. At that point in time, I have to say, do I want to play this specific game and get promoted and think about how I can do this? Or do I want to go somewhere else where that's not necessarily the case? What does that even mean to be more likable? Because that's so subjective anyways. What's under that, do you think, with the benefit of time and space? It's a great question. The example that was given to me at the time was people are coming to me about a peer reviewer saying how much they enjoy working with that person, but people aren't coming to me saying that about you. I don't know what to do with that. Does it mean I'm not being effective or are they just not telling you or do they hate working with me? But what I did think and understand is, am I building the relationships? Are they mutual? Am I cultivating what's necessary to get things done together? Because ultimately, especially in PLG, you have to form relationships with so many people in the organization to be successful. And so if there were some that were not effective, then certainly I could see where that would hinder my growth. What I decided is that wasn't the kind of environment I wanted to work in because I did feel like I was working very hard at relationship building and that it's a two-way street. So that was an example of I paid attention to the feedback, but I ultimately decided I don't think this is good feedback. For me and the kind of environment where I want to try to be successful, it's hard because there were a lot of other great things about the organization and the people I was working with. You have to be realistic about the environment that you're in. I have a mentor of mine who always says something like, if you're unhappy with your job, don't just mope about it and be unhappy. Put your company on your own performance plan. And if they don't meet your performance standards, then go find another company. 
This is said to me eight years ago by Sunit Bhatt, who's incredibly successful and a great person in my life. And that's what you were saying here. You got this feedback. Company's not going to change. I think I'm going to leave this company. This is the wrong fit for me. Yeah, I think it's really scary to think that you could make that decision. We see this with things like the great resignation or the great quit. But companies have been in the driver's seat for a really long time. And I think employees are now saying, I want to be in the driver's seat. And I think it's important to have some kind of balance in there. But it's your career. You should be in the driver's seat. Why aren't we holding companies to the same standards that maybe we're holding our employees to, for example? Even if that option or choice is to stick it out where you're at, you're consciously making that option. You're not giving up all your control and your power. I will say I'll give myself credit. I think I've done a good job in the last couple of organizations of knowing when my time was done. And maybe I don't necessarily want it to happen in this way, but now I'm going to read the writing on the wall and I'm going to turn it into the outcome that I want to happen for me. My time's come to an end. How do I get into the driver's seat to close this out? What do you use to make that decision? Are you just using a gut feel, your intuition, or are there some signals that folks should listen to? A lot of it is intuition. It's collecting cues around you, the subtle feedback, essentially the non-feedback. Are you being included in decisions that maybe you were included in before? When it comes to new strategy, what role does your work play in the strategy in the future of the company? Can you feel that something's changed in terms of importance? Like if you went from being the number one most important company initiative to not even on the list, that's a pretty big cue. Or you've bumped down or your resourcing has changed. So I think it's less about what people are actually saying and about being receptive to what's going on around you. The conversations you're having, the language that's happening in those conversations, are people canceling meetings on you? How in demand is your feedback, your resources? You start to get a sense of that over time. Most people pick up on that pretty quickly. And instead of fighting that for a long period of time, certainly I think occasionally that can be reversed, but I think the reality is most of the time it can't. I've done my part and the time's over. I think that's incredible advice. I don't think it's as easy for all folks to see maybe as it has been for you. I think as your career goes, it becomes easier. But if I reflect on my own career, I waited too dang long. And I think the signs were there. And I just thought things have changed a million times. They'll probably change again. Sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. So I think that's really good advice to be lifting your head up and looking around and really doing your own biannual review of the company and making sure that you're still a fit and a priority. Yeah. And for me, having impact is one of the top most important things. And so if I start to feel like I can't have impact, then I immediately know that. And there are many ways that I'm not the smartest person in the room or in the company, but I would say one of my superpowers is paying attention to and collecting those signs from people and connecting the dots between things. So I do think it's an area in particular that comes more naturally to me. If you could go back in time, are there other skills that you would prioritize to make your growth career easier, smoother, faster? I was never an ICPM. So I have never held the role of a PM before. I ended up hiring a lot of growth PMs and leading product organizations and product teams. And I think it's an area where I've felt a little bit of an imposter because I haven't actually done the job. Now, caveat, when I was starting growth at MailChimp, I was wearing all the hats. I was doing PMing, I was project managing, I was doing all the things, but I only did that long enough to hire people and get things going from the ground up. And I've seen that in how I hire in the future. So like at Mural, I ended up hiring a great senior PM and then promoting him to a GPM. 
And part of the role I had him lead was a lot of professional development for the PMs because my core area was not teaching people great PM skills. It was a lot more about PLG strategy and the other things. So I think I would have given myself more credibility, honestly, within product to have been a PM. And I think there's things that I missed learning as a PM. And so I wish I had done that for at least some period of time. And then the other one is I began trying to teach myself SQL. I could manipulate some queries and stuff. And then I eventually hired some really amazing people in analytics. I honestly think the analytics folks are the ones who have been the absolute most important hires I've made in all of my growth teams and organizations. And there's been some fantastic talent, but I really wish I knew SQL so that I could go in and just do more myself sometimes. Did you take a course? Did you do one of those? I think I needed more structured content and training than just the online course. Though I'm hearing that chat GPT can basically write a lot of queries for you. I was trying to mess around with that the other day and see like, how's your data structured and all those things. Usually that's the gotcha is like, you actually have to know what the data is called and where it lives and all that stuff. But I feel like I could be even more dangerous if I had some of those skills. I felt the same way. I took a SQL class. I learned about it all in an academic vacuum. I learned how to write queries. I felt like I had it. And then I went to run queries at the companies that I've worked at in their databases. And it was all gotchas. It was like, oh, the way that we structured probably isn't best practice. We like use this thing and this thing references this thing. And we call this thing the same as this other thing. And I was like, none of my training is actually that helpful here. So I did that and it still wasn't that helpful, but I feel the same way. If I could give advice to any early stage company, and I'm seeing it now working in sidebar as an early stage company, invest in your data early on. Your future self will thank you a thousand times over. And it will save you so much headache and you'll be able to move so much faster. Great advice. Lauren, thank you for coming on and sharing your story and your background and some of your challenges. For folks who are listening that want to connect or interact with you, where should they go? I am not on Twitter or X now, but you can definitely find me on LinkedIn and be happy to chat with folks and you can follow along on what I'm up to. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you for listening to the pod. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you did, the biggest gift that you could give me as a small business owner and as a content creator would be a review. You know the game. You can go on to Apple Podcasts. You can go on Spotify. Leave a review. That would help me service this content to other folks who are like you. Obviously, you should subscribe to the content if you really dug it. And if there's feedback that you have for me, folks you think I should chat with, stuff that you wish I would gloss over faster, whatever it is, I'm all ears. I work in growth. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I try to collect feedback and iterate quickly. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn at Andrew Kaplan or on Twitter at at A Kaplan. Otherwise, hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll see you next show.